are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. We're now at 12 noon. I hope you can join us today. Thank you for uh, being with us. Uh, What we're doing here is our Thursday live question and answer. And usually I'm doing this from my home on the West Coast of the United States. But today I'm traveling and I'm especially grateful for the times when I can do this when I am traveling. And I told you next or last Thursday that uh, God willing and if we live, I'd be able to do the question and answer today from a Middle Eastern country. And where I am today is in the Gulf nation of Bahrain. Very pleased to be here. Uh, I'm here as a guest visiting friends. I'm also connecting with some wonderful people here, people who have an interest in what God is doing um, all over this Gulf area. And so very pleased to be able to be speaking at a congregation tomorrow and uh, just having the opportunity to connect with some wonderful brothers and sisters here in Bahrain and those who have an interest in seeing what God can do throughout, again, this wonderful historic region. So if you're joining us today, I'm glad I could have you. You can see I'm in a hotel room. It's 11 o'clock at night. I'm here traveling with a good friend of mine, Pastor Lance Ralston. He's the pastor of Calvary Chapel of Oxnard. Lance and I have been fast friends for uh, more than 40 years, and uh, I'm very grateful that he was able to make this trip with me. Okay, so here's where we're at right now. We're going to begin with today's lead question, and our lead question for today comes from Marlene. I'm going to read you Marlene's question, and then we'll sort of talk through it bit by bit. Here's what Marlene asked. She says, I am struggling with a church I love to go to. The sermons seem fine, but the Instagram postings are a different story. They would often talk like, and here she's quoting, God has a miracle awaiting for you today, so you believe it, and stuff. When I asked about it, they said that Jesus spoke differently to the crowds than to his disciples. It is he gave his crowds the milk, whereas his disciples got the meat. Where would we draw the line, is her question. To me, it doesn't sound right to catch people that way. Maybe David could elaborate on that. Well, Marlene, you're asking a wonderful question, and let me just sort of get right at it with you. Um, First of all, I'm glad that the sermons are fine at your church. I mean, that's one of the first things you say. You say you love to go to your church and the sermons seem fine. Hey, Marlene, don't take that for granted. If there's a church that you genuinely enjoy going to, that must mean there's some atmosphere of welcoming and fellowship there at the church. And you also enjoy the sermons, the ministry of the word of God at that particular church. As I said before, that's not something to take lightly. That's something to really appreciate before the Lord. So first of all, be grateful for that. Secondly, I think you are right to be wary of this approach. Uh, Apparently, the church is promoting, trying to attract people, trying to draw people to the church with promises of miracles and things like this. Again, you quote that an Instagram post might say something like this, God has a miracle awaiting for you today, so believe it. Again, Marlene, I think you're right to be wary of this approach. And let me discuss several reasons why. First of all, now, 
we believe, I'll just say I believe, that God works miracles. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And we rejoice in the fact that God works miracles. So we're not questioning the miracle working power of God in the slightest. However, we can't promise miracles at any specific time or place. I can't tell anybody, your miracle's gonna come tomorrow. I can't tell anybody, your miracle's gonna come today. I can't say, come to this church and God will work a miracle and this, that. No, we can't promise. We believe God works miracles. And may I say, we long to see more of such things, not less. However, we are not in charge of the miraculous. What happens with the miraculous is frankly out of our hands. We can't promise miracles at any specific time and place. And I believe that there is also, this is a second point, an inherent danger in trying to win people with the spectacular, with miracles and such. When we try to win people to Jesus Christ with spectacular things, whether they be miracles, whether they be fancy stage or arena productions, whether it be, you know, amazing this or amazing that, um, it's dangerous to win people with those approaches and tactics. Now, I want to say, I always like to try to think the best of people. That's a good thing for us, I believe. And I want to think the best of your pastor and your church in this regard, that they genuinely have good motives in that they want to see people one to Jesus. That is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. So we we recognize the goodness of that in the approach. However, we also recognize just as much that um, there's a principle that I think can be repeated many times. The principle is simply this. Um, What you win people with is what you win them to. Do you understand what I'm trying to get at? If you win people to Christ, so to speak, with the spectacular or promises of the spectacular, then you're just going to have to keep providing the spectacular in order to keep them. And listen, I believe that God works miracles. I believe God does amazing things, but not all the time. There is a real and a definite place for serving God, for loving God, and for honoring God in the mundane, simple things of life without needing the spectacular in order to serve God and to bring him honor. So I would really um, give that particular caution about that. Now, Let me continue on. I think there's a third danger in this. The first danger is that we can't promise miracles at any time or place. The second danger in this is that um, even though it may be done out of good motives, what you win them to is what you win them uh, with. Excuse me, what you win them with is what you win them to. You'll have to keep providing those things. But then here's a third thing that I think is very important. Our call as believers in evangelism, it's not merely to make converts, so to speak. Our goal is to make disciples. And if all we're interested is getting some kind of response 
from somebody, then we're going to be likely to promise this or promise that or, or, or try to wow them with the spectacular or whatever have you. But if we recognize that the real goal of Christian evangelism is not just to get people to make a decision or pray a prayer, that, that's a glorious beginning that we're all for. But the real goal is to make disciples. And if we are doing evangelism in a way that will defeat or weaken that essential uh, move towards discipleship, then we're not doing anybody any favors in the work that we do for them. So I think this is a very important point and one that's often neglected. Sometimes we get into the bad habit of thinking that we have to just concern ourselves with the absolute bare minimum of what it will take to bring people to a decision for Jesus Christ. And we're not really interested in what the bare minimum is. We're interested in making disciples for Jesus Christ. That's the Great Commission. That's what we're called to do. So again, let me give you reasons to be wary of the approach. I'm going to repeat a few things. First of all, we do believe God works miracles, but we can't promise miracles at any specific time and place. It's dangerous to win people with the spectacular, with miracles and such. Our call is not to win converts, but instead it is to make disciples. And then uh, finally, I would say this. Jesus did not have a different message for the crowds than he had for the disciples. When Jesus spoke to his disciples and when he spoke to the crowds, Jesus Christ gave a radical call to discipleship a radical call to follow him. Let me read to you from Luke chapter 14, starting at verse 25. We read this. Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Listen, Jesus was not preaching an easy message for the crowd. Now, I could give you several other instances in the Gospels where Jesus gave a very strong call to discipleship, to dying to self, to laying down your life if you're going to follow him. Now, one thing that I think is really interesting is that shortly after, after those verses from Luke chapter 14. We find in Luke chapter 15, verse 1, that it says that the tax collectors and the sinners followed him gladly. We often think that if we preach a message of strong commitment and discipleship in following Jesus Christ, that people won't want to respond, that, you know, people won't follow. Uh, Friends, I don't think that's true. I think that God has engineered us with the desire to respond to a strong call for things in life. And this is one example of this. So those are four reasons, Marlene, why I say you have good reason to be wary of this approach by your pastor, your church, whatever it is. Even though I will allow it, they probably mean well in doing this. But it's a mistaken approach for at least these four reasons. Number one, we can't schedule or arrange miracles. We can't promise miracles at a time or place. 
Secondly, it's dangerous to attempt to win people with the spectacular, with miracles and such. Uh, number three, our call isn't to win converts, but it's to make disciples. And then number four, Jesus most certainly did not use a different message for the crowds than he used for the disciples. Both were radically called to follow him. So I just want to review this. Marlene, let's remember, we're not anti-miracle. We're pro-miracle. We, we, we want to anticipate and believe that God will do the miraculous. And we believe that over time, the followers of Jesus will see him do amazing and miraculous things. However, we can't promise specific miracles or specific timing for miracles. And we must tell the truth about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We must be real about our great commission, and that is to make disciples, not just look for converts that have signed up or made some kind of profession of faith. So Marlene, I hope that's helpful for you. Uh, now that we're about 15 minutes or so into our program, 13, 15 minutes, whatever it is, uh, let me give you a little reminder that I am obviously on location today. I'm not speaking to you from my normal setup. I don't see any bookshelf with books behind me. There's no little bobblehead of some Christian from church history over my shoulder. It's just me in front of a curtain because I'm speaking to you uh, from a hotel room in the kingdom of Bahrain where I've come to meet some friends, to spend some time with some people who have an interest in seeing the work of God continue uh, in this general area, and uh, to sort of as well um, see what we can arrange, see what we can do to further the work of the Arabic translation of my Bible commentary. Now you, dear YouTube listener, dear TWR uh, you know, listener, Dear Facebook Live listener, um, you, you may have no idea, but I have a online commentary through the entire Bible that some people find helpful. Maybe you would find it helpful for you to understand the Bible and as a part of maybe uh, your devotional reading or your Bible study time, or if you're ever called on to prepare to teach for something, it would be an avenue for you to do. And I have this Bible commentary that's been online for some 25 years, and we're passionate about translating this free Bible resource into other languages. And one of the languages we have a real heart for is Arabic. We have the entire New Testament commentary translated into Arabic, and a good part, maybe even up to half of the Old Testament finished by now. You can find this commentary at the following website, arabic.enduringword.com. I'll say it one more time, arabic.enduringword.com. And uh, one of the reasons why I'm here with my friend, Pastor Lance Ralston, is simply because we want to connect with people who might benefit from the Arabic translation of the commentary and who might be able to give us suggestions or guidance on how we can let more and more people know about the Arabic translation of the commentary. Of course, we translate into many more languages than just Arabic. We have active translation works in 
Chinese and Portuguese and German and Russian and Hindi and Urdu and French and more that I could list. But let me tell you something special that just happened today. Just today, we went live with our Italian subdomain. We finally felt like we had enough of the New Testament commentary translated that we said, let's go ahead and put it online. So if you wanted to see our Italian translation of my Bible commentary, you would simply go to it.enduringword.com. Again, that's simply IT, you know, the two-letter abbreviation for the Italian language, it.enduringword.com, and you can take a look there. All right, that's enough for that sort of background. Uh, Let me get into some questions here coming in from the live chat, comments on YouTube, excuse me, comments on Facebook, live chat on YouTube. These get forwarded to our moderator, Devin, and Devin passes them on to me. So, uh, first of all, we have a question from Patty, speaking from Facebook, and Patty asks this question. Do you think that the earth is 6,000 years old? Do you think that Jesus will come back and reign for 1,000 years, and that will be the Sabbath? I mean, will that be the 7,000th year? Patty, um, let, let me just say, there is no way for us to know Uh, with precision, especially biblically speaking. Biblically speaking, there's no way for us to know with precision uh, how old the earth is. Um, It's kind of interesting. Scientists feel like they have an exact answer to that question. You know, they'll say it was, I don't know, 14.354 billion years ago, whatever it is that that some scientists say. Um, Of course, there's no universal agreement upon this from scientists, but the general consensus is that the uh, earth is millions, if not billions, of years old. And so this great millions of this great period of time in the past, um, they feel that they can have precision. The Bible just doesn't tell us. There are people such as the famous archbishop, I think his first name was James Usher, who calculated going back through the genealogies of the Old Testament and the book of Genesis, calculated that the earth was, um, in present-day reckoning, somewhere around 6,000 years old. But I don't think that we can regard Usher's chronology as being exhaustive or absolutely correct. Now, I generally am part of the group that would say uh, that I believe in a relatively young earth. Uh, What relatively young means, I don't know exactly. Uh, But I certainly believe that it's within God's capability, and it's not unreasonable to think that God would create an earth with age built into it. I could give you several examples. Let let me just say, we know that there were trees in the Garden of Eden. Well, if you were to cut down one of those trees, and please don't cut down the tree of the knowledge of good and evil— God said, don't eat the fruit of it. I'm sure we weren't supposed to cut it down either. But if you were to cut down a tree in the Garden of Eden, would it have rings in the middle? Well, I think it would. Even as Adam, when he was created, had markers of age. Adam was not created as a fertilized egg and then kind of growing from there. He was created as presumably a full-grown man, I don't know, 25, 30, 35 years old, whatever it would be. And and God built the trees of the Garden of Eden with age built into them. 
he built the human beings who populated the Garden of Eden with age built into them. And I don't see any absolute reason why God could not do the same for um, the earth itself. I know that that's an answer that kind of offends some people, but I don't see the great offense in it. So I'm much more comfortable with saying that we have a relatively young, I wouldn't say 6,000 years, I would just say relatively young. And because of that, I don't put a lot of stock in the idea that each millennium of human history is represented by a thousand years, and we've had 6,000 years of human history, and that now we're about to embark on the 7,000th year, and that will be the start of the thousand-year millennium. I, I, I don't really buy that. I don't put much stock in that idea. I, I, I wouldn't throw it out and say it's absolutely impossible, but um, I, I just don't put a lot of stock, a lot of a credit to that idea. So, Patty, yes, for my opinion on that, I gave you my opinion. You can take that for whatever it's worth. Next question comes from YouTube from Jason, who asks, why are the animal sacrifices resumed during the millennium? Okay, Jason, I'm going to answer the question, but first, let me say, I recommend that you go to my commentary on the book of Ezekiel. Where does that section start in Ezekiel? Maybe Ezekiel chapter 48, 42, uh, where, wherever those chapters are that sort of make up this ending portion of the book of Ezekiel. Look at how I more exhaustively deal with that question in my commentary. I think I give you a much fuller answer to the question, but I'll give you it in summary right here, right now. The bottom line is I think that animal sacrifices are resumed not, let me repeat this again, not for the atonement of sin. That would be wrong, and you might even say that would be blasphemous. I know blasphemous is a strong term. But friends, hear me out on this. It would be blasphemous because to do animal sacrifices for the atonement of sin after the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross is to in some way either deny or at the very least lessen the greatness of the work of Jesus. So I do not believe that the animal sacrifices in the book of Revelation have to do with atonement that was once for all provided by the work of Jesus at the cross. However, we need to understand that atonement for sin was not the only purpose or reason for animal sacrifice. Uh, animal sacrifices could be offered as an expression of total dedication unto the Lord. Animal sacrifices could be offered as fellowship offerings with God. Animal sacrifices could be offered in fulfillment of a vow. Animal sacrifices could be offered uh, as a way to appraise God and give him honor. So I would have to say that it was in light of these other aspects of sacrifice, not to atone for sin. But let me bring up one other matter regarding this. I think it's also very important to point out that though this work is finished, there is also something of a commemorative aspect with these sacrifices. Um, I, I don't know if you've ever been to a place like Colonial Williamsburg or some other place where people dress up in historical costumes and they reenact things from hundreds of years ago just to give people in the present day a sense of what it was like in the past. 
I believe there's a bit of a sense of historical reenactment uh, to show the people who populate the earth during the millennium what it was like to serve God and to honor God in previous generations, in previous millennium. So, Jason, that's how I would argue. Again, I would direct you to my commentary on those latter chapters in the book of Exodus. <laughs> I'd maybe start at like Exodus chapter 40 or 42 and just kind of look because I give a detailed treatment of that idea. Thank you for that question, Jason. Next question comes also on YouTube from Donald, and Donald asks this question. If some get happy during the praise and worship service, and people start to dance or run around the building, we call it shouting. Is this the work of the Holy Spirit, or is this just their emotions? Well, Donald, let me put it to you this way. There's a principle that we gather from the New Testament. And the principle simply says this, that the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. Um, I'm in a room here with my good friend, Pastor Lance Ralston. Lance, is that 1 Corinthians chapter 14? Uh, yes, it is. Yes, the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets, confirmed by my colleague, Pastor Lance Ralston. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Now, this is one of several places in the scriptures that teach us the principle that God does not overwhelm a person and control their spiritual, or excuse me, their physical actions with the filling of the Holy Spirit. The spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. In other words, being indwelt by the Holy Spirit is not like demonic possession. Demonic possession, one potential evidence of it, is by uncontrollable actions with the body. And this is not what the Holy Spirit does. I believe that there are people who perhaps the Holy Spirit has genuinely moved upon them and then they react to that moving of the Holy Spirit in a particular, or maybe it's better to say, in a peculiar kind of way. For example, uh, a person may be under intense conviction of sin by the Holy Spirit, and they start trembling. They start shaking, maybe even violently. Well, friends, it's not the Holy Spirit that's making them shake. What they're actually probably doing is resisting the work of the Holy Spirit. And there's something physiologically happening inside of them because they are resisting the work of the Holy Spirit. So uh, for that reason, um, I, I don't think that the Holy Spirit makes someone uh, run around a room. I don't think the Holy Spirit makes someone dance. Now, a, a person could be so filled with joy that they want to dance. But fine, they want to do it. And they're in control. They can stop dancing if they want to. They can stop running around the room. Why? Again, that principle from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. Now, there is a whole spectrum within the Christian world of what connects with people, what resonates with people in worship. And there are, if you want to put it in this way, there are people who are much more energetic in their worship than other people. 
look, let's face it. Uh, for some people, they are content with a reverent heart directed towards God in silence and in awe, maybe with a little bit of ceremony, a little bit of incense, a little bit of liturgy. Okay, fine. But there are other people who are much more energetic in their expression of, of worship. And that is more meaningful. I don't think you can say that the Holy Spirit has caused or forced either one of these. It has to do more with the personality and the response of that individual person. Now, I will say this. One more thing in addition. That it's up to the individual to be sensitive to their surroundings. This is what I mean. If um, I am in a worship service and half the room starts dancing, it's not going to be a distraction if I start dancing. Well, let me take that back. It would be a distraction if I started dancing because I'm a terrible dancer and everybody would notice. But just in general, it wouldn't be a distraction if one more person started dancing within the room. Now, if you have a room where no one is dancing and one person goes up to the front and starts dancing, they are immediately going to draw the attention of everybody in the room upon them. And might I say, that's not right. It's not right. Often, I won't say always, but often it's selfish. It's, hey, everybody, look at me. Look at what I can do. Hey, everybody, stop thinking about the Lord as you sing this song. Start thinking about me, the dancing guy in the front row, or the dancing queen, whatever you want to say. You, you see, we, we shouldn't have this desire to draw the congregation's attention to ourself in worship. The attention should be on the Lord. And what draws attention and what does not is very much connected to context. As I said, if half the room is already dancing, it's not going to matter if one more does. But if nobody in the room is doing it, then it's going to draw attention to oneself. And that kind of thing doesn't have a heart to edify, to honor the entire body of Christ present at a congregational meeting. So, um, I don't think that these physical manifestations are directly the work of the Spirit. I think it's more a human, chosen, in some way or another, reaction to what the Holy Spirit is doing. And whether or not these things are good or should be allowed really matter very much upon context. Especially, would it be done in a context that would draw attention to myself? Thank you there for that question, uh, Donald. Let me go on to the next question from Tim, who's watching us on YouTube today. Tim asked this question. Have you ever visited Israel or Jerusalem? If so, what's one of the structures that stands out to you today from the time of Jesus? Well, what a great question there, Donald. And I have to say, excuse me, Tim, Donald was the previous question. Tim, I have been to Israel and to Jerusalem several times. And uh, it's been a great pleasure to go to Israel. Now, right now, I'm in the Middle East, and uh, I'm not in Israel, and I won't be visiting Israel on this trip. Um, As someone like myself, who has been to Israel many times and loves to visit Israel, 
it is good to get out and see what God is doing in the broader region of the Middle East. And to remember, though I do believe God loves Israel and has a plan for them, uh, very much so God is working in other nations, in other places around the Middle East, in this Gulf region where I'm at. And it's good for me to see that and to be reminded of that. Now, what are the structures that stand out to me today from the time of Jesus? Well, Tim, I'll just give you one example. It is the area that is normally called the Southern Steps. And this is the area right outside the Southern Wall of the Temple Mount. Now, what makes this area so special? Well, because they have uncovered some of the original marble steps that led up to the temple, the Temple Mount, and the entrance for the common people up to the Temple Mount. It would have been the way that Jesus and his disciples would, along with innumerable other people, would have gone up to the temple. And to look at those steps, to see the setting, to see the arrangement, and realize my Savior, Jesus Christ, walked upon these very steps. Because in many places, it is the original stone from the time of Jesus. And to say that Jesus walked on these original steps, well, it's just staggering to think about. But there are many memorable places. Um, I enjoy it when I can visit Israel. And uh, I look forward to a visit later on this year. Okay, let me go on to the next question that comes from John, writing from Facebook. Let me take a drink of water here. John asks, greetings from Nairobi City, Kenya. I just discovered your ministry a few days ago. John, my wife was recently in Nairobi doing a dental mission, working with some people who maybe would not normally easily be able to get dental care. And my wife and her dental team uh, served hundreds of people in the name of the Lord, fixing teeth, cleaning teeth, filling teeth, uh, pulling teeth when necessary. And I'm also happy to say that right now, my wife is in Honduras uh, doing the same kind of thing with a dental ministry. I doubt that she's listening to me right now. Maybe she'll listen to this later because she is hard at work with her team, ministering to people with dental care who wouldn't normally be able to get it and doing it in the name of Jesus. So good on you, Ingalil, and your whole team out there. Okay, so anyway, let me get on to John's question here. John asks, my question, as a pastor here in Kenya, I see a lot of ministry going towards getting the individual believer to discover and pursue their personal purposes and destinies. Doesn't seem to matter to many that the Christian life is to be lived in the experience of the body of Christ, corporate, with each serving others and being served by others. How can we adjust from being seekers of our personal blessedness to be willing to participate in the blessedness of the body of Christ? Your thoughts. Well, John, can I first of all say thank you for such a wonderful question? I think it's a very perceptive question, a very helpful question for the present day. Because, John, I fear that this focus on the individual being blessed, I wonder, I can't say this for sure, but I wonder if this hasn't been exported 
from American Christianity and received, imported into uh, the African Christianity that you uh, ministered to in a congregation there in Kenya. Because it's true, I think it's sort of a hallmark of Western Christianity, uh, especially in America, that we are very focused on the individual. Now, let me say right off, um, there are good parts to the individual emphasis and aspect of American Christianity. And I could talk about the good parts of it for certain, but there are also inherent dangers. There are also inherent weaknesses. And the idea that the whole purpose of Christianity is to bless me, to make me happy, for me to discover my purpose. John, you're very perceptive in pointing out that that's misguided. And I'll tell you what, it does not lead to true happiness and fulfillment. You see, Jesus created us to be fundamentally servants to one another. We find our greatest fulfillment in life when we do, as what Paul said in Philippians, when we esteem others greater than ourselves. And there are many, many people who are chronically frustrated because they can't seem to find the focus or the purpose or the destiny for their life. And the best thing that they could do is forget about trying to find it. Why don't you just go out and be a blessing to some other people? Look for other people to bless, to, as Paul writes again in Philippians, to prefer others greater than yourself. And it's this attitude of laying down one's life, of serving others, of having that real Jesus style of nature. Uh, that's really the path to great fulfillment. Friends, the happiest people you'll ever meet in your life are going to be the people who understand these servant principles in the life and ministry of Jesus. So, John, I think we can be people who constantly exhort other people along these lines, and we can be people who demonstrate the right way to live this by our own lives. Look, John, we'd be lying if we said that this great mentality that's abroad in our culture uh, doesn't infect us, if it doesn't touch us at places. And we want to be those who put others first, uh, or what's the order that some people talk about? Um, uh, God first, others second, and myself third. And maybe that's a pretty distant third. I know that goes against the spirit of the age. The spirit of our age, especially in the Western world, maybe I can specifically say America, is to say, hey, you better look out for yourself first and take care of yourself first and don't let anybody get one over on you and, and don't let anybody show see your weakness. You get from them whatever you can. Um, you know, there, there needs to be a place where we say, no, I'm going to follow the purpose and the plan for Jesus. And let me tell you, true joy of life and living is found in that. So I hope, um, John, uh, that God gives you continued grace and wisdom to be able to really present the servant nature, the servant style of Jesus. John, let me recommend to you some resources by a man named Gail Irwin. And you spell Irwin E-R-W-I-N. So Gail Irwin, and especially his book, Jesus style or the Jesus style. You can find these resources for free online, in text, in audiobooks. Uh, Gail is a remarkable man who has a very generous heart to make his 
resources available so broadly and often at no cost. Uh, read that book, John, The Jesus Style by Gail Irwin. And maybe we can even think to put a link to that up in our uh, description of today's video, at least in YouTube, uh, if you can check back on that, John. So uh, this servant lifestyle really is the pathway to a life of love and joy and peace. Look, it's, um, it's wearying to constantly look out for number one. It's blessed to put God first, others second, and ourselves third. Let me continue on to the next question from Lucho. Can animals be demon-possessed? Lucho, that is an interesting and somewhat difficult question. Um, I would have to say, biblically speaking, because I'll tell you, I have had no experience with an animal that I thought was demon-possessed. So I just don't know about from practical experience. But I can say uh, from um, the Bible that there was an occasion where Jesus cast a demon or a group of demons into a herd of swine, pigs. So, uh, Lucho, again, uh, watching us on YouTube, thank you for joining us on YouTube. There's at least some biblical precedent for uh, these demonic spirits to inhabit uh, animals. Whether that was a one-off, whether it's something that can happen at other times, I don't know. But I don't think we need to live in fear of such things. And what I mean by this is that whether a demonic spirit can inhabit uh, a uh, animal, the body of an animal in some way, it doesn't turn away the truth that the Bible says, greater is he who is within you than he who is in the world. And it doesn't matter if that demonic spirit is in the world possessing an animal of some kind or not. The spirit of God is mightier within us and has more power than any demonic spirit. So we don't have much biblical evidence on this, but the little amount that we have seems to suggest that at least it's happened on occasion, at least in one instance biblically that we can think of. Next question uh, comes from Angelina, I think writing from YouTube. Angelina says, what's the difference between fallen angels and demons? Can they hear our thoughts? All right, Angelina, let me deal with two questions here. First of all, you want to know what's the difference between fallen angels and demons? Now, Angelina, you should know that there's some debate on this question among Christians. Um, I come out on the side where I believe that fallen angels and demonic spirits are the same thing. That demonic spirits are fallen angels. Again, I, I don't want to act like that opinion is without controversy in the Christian world. There are definitely some who would disagree and say that fallen angels and demonic spirits have different origin points and they're different things altogether. Uh, to me, reading the scriptural record, it makes the most sense to say that these are um, the demonic spirits are, perhaps I should say, fallen angels. Um, so that would be my best understanding of the scriptures. Uh, and then you ask, can they hear our thoughts? Again, may I say, the scriptures do not specifically point to this question. There is no specific answer to this question biblically. However, I can say this, that 
my guess is that angels or demonic spirits cannot hear our thoughts or read our minds, but they are such constant and experienced observers of human nature, both in the general and in the particular, in the individual, that they can reliably guess what we think at any particular moment. Not perfectly, of course. Only God is perfect. But I think that they are, again, are such expert observers of human nature, both in the general human nature, but then also in specific individuals that they can reliably guess. I heard one preacher put it this way. He said, listen, if my wife can know what I'm thinking, uh, then maybe the devil can as well. I think that's kind of a humorous way to put it. I hope that man wasn't equating uh, the devil with his wife, but I think you understand what I mean. Uh, uh, My wife can't actually see my thoughts and enter into my mind and do it by some kind of mystical mind transfer or something like that. Um, However, she doesn't have to. She's lived with me long enough. She's seen me, you know, enough. She knows my mannerisms, my cues, my habits, my patterns well enough to where she can pretty reliably think, uh, she can reliably guess what I'm thinking. And uh, the same principle can hold true for demonic spirits as well. Right, let me go on to the next question from Shanti. Hey, thank you, Shanti. It's nice to hear from you again. Good to see you there, sister. Uh, Shanti asked us, what are your thoughts on inerrancy versus infallibility? And why does it seem that only American Christians care about inerrancy? Well, Shanti, first of all, I would push back on the idea that it's only American Christians that... uh, care about inerrancy. I'll agree that the debate is stronger in the present day in America, but throughout history, um, it's been widely believed that the Bible doesn't have errors. That's what we're talking about. Inerrant means that in the original autograph copies, not necessarily the copied copies, if I could use such a phrase, but in the autograph originals, that there were just no errors. And what we have today are extremely reliable copies of those autographs, though not perfect copies, we'll admit that. Um, And that has been widely held throughout church history, even if that specific word inerrancy was not used. The word inerrancy uh, came to uh, fashion in theological circles in the 20th century in response to uh, what you might call theologically liberal attacks against the integrity of the scriptures. They say, well, no, the the Bible's wrong. It doesn't happen the way it said it happened with regard to creation. No, the Bible's wrong. Uh, Noah's flood couldn't have happened the way it happened and the way it says it happened in the Bible. Uh, No, the Bible's wrong. Uh, God couldn't have asked Abraham to do this. And that's just on and on. Even getting down to the person work of Jesus. People say, well, the, the Bible's wrong when it says that Jesus rose from the dead. We know people don't do that. And they just believe that the Bible was filled with a lot of errors. Well, in response to that in the 20th century, there were people who formulated the idea, no, the Bible is without error 
again, we go back to its autographed copies, but it's without error in what it says and what it affirms and what, in what it teaches. When the Bible teaches history, it's true history. When it teaches poetry, it's true poetry. When it teaches prophecy, it's true prophecy. And we can just rest in this. Now, my challenge to people who don't... Now, the, the term inerrancy in some circles has fallen into disfavor. It kind of is icky, if I can use sort of an American term there. I don't think that translates to many other languages. But, you know, it's something, oh, oh, that, 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 that's what those, um, you know, radical, crazy fundamentalists believe. We, we're more sophisticated than that. All right. Look, if you don't like the term inerrancy, if you want to say, I believe the Bible is infallible without failure in any way, not without in error. Um, without error, um, again, I would just say, do you believe that the Bible's wrong about anything? Now, look, if you don't believe the Bible is wrong about anything, then I can just argue you're inerrant. You believe that the Bible's right and everything. And even if you don't like the term, look, I don't care about the specific term so much, but the concept behind the term is very important. Look, if you think that the Bible is wrong about some things, wrong in its history, wrong in its laws, wrong in its prophecy, wrong in its poetry, if you believe that the Bible's wrong, then fine, be honest and say it. But I, I am hesitant with people who don't want to take uh, they don't want to use the term inerrant. Okay, fine. If you don't want to use the term inerrant. Um, and maybe they're critical of those people who do use the term inerrant. While at the same time, they're very coy about whether or not they think that there's errors in the Bible. Look, let's just be clear. If you think there's errors in the Bible, then just tell us. Say, I think there's errors in the Bible, and I think this is an error, and this is an error. and this. Okay, great. Then we know. But there's no reason to be coy about it all. That's kind of my perspective there, Shanti. You, you are right in that in the 20th century, the word inerrancy became a thing. And those battles have been more pronounced in America. But look, let, let me tell you one reason for that is, first of all, other parts of the world are just not fighting those battles because they believe the Bible. They don't. Look, uh, when you find right-on Christians in Africa, I don't think they're agonizing over inerrancy. They just believe the Bible's true. And at a truth, that's what inerrancy is. I believe the Bible's true. I don't believe it's wrong at this point or that particular point. In Europe... I'm speaking very generally here, so forgive my general speaking. In Europe, inerrancy isn't much of an issue because so many churches have just surrendered in that battle. It's not an issue. Yeah, we all know the Bible's filled with there, so why should we fight over? Curiously, it's been more in North America, specifically in America, where the battle's been fought, where there's been people who have promoted 
theological liberalism and an undermining of the integrity of scriptures. And there's been other people who have said, no, we're not, we're not going to do that. So you're right in that it's a battle that's been most dramatically fought in America. And the term itself is fairly recent, but the concept goes back throughout church history. Again, thank you for that question, Shanti. It's great to hear from you. Another question from YouTube from Kenneth said, uh, did creation happen in six literal 24-hour days or periods of time? Okay, Kenneth, here's the issue here. I, I just told you that uh, I believe, and I hope that most of us believe, if not, I hope I could persuade you, that the Bible's without error. The Bible's true in what it says. But if you heard me say, I said, when the Bible teaches history, it teaches history. When it teaches poetry, it teaches poetry, and it's true poetry. It's true history, true poetry, true prophecy, true, what, true law when it gives the law. Here's the debate with Genesis chapters 1 and chapters 2. There are some people who really honor and respect the scriptures who say this is not written historically. This is written poetically. And it was never intended to be understood in a uh, literal historic sense. There are other people who say, no, the preponderance of the greater evidence is on the side of this being written in a historical sense more than a poetic sense. And, and they would tend towards something like six literal 24-hour days. Now, let me just say, if God intended to create the world in six literal 24-hour days, I know the slightest doubt that he could do it. It's not beyond God's capability to do it. To me, the issue rides on, do we regard Genesis 1 and 2 as fundamentally historic narrative in its literary approach or poetic? And I, I've read some scholars who say that at least in some sense, it's a combination of these genres. Again, I, I'm no expert on the nuances of Hebrew literature in the original I lean towards the part as regarding it as historic. <clears throat> so I lean towards the part as regarding creation as being in something like six 24-hour days. Uh, you know, how do you measure days when the sun's not exactly up and, you know, these kind of things. So I, again, something like that. But those who argue, again, I don't have a problem with people who argue strongly that God is created. Let me rephrase that. I believe it's important for every Christian to argue strongly that God is the creator. We are not created by fate or chance or blind evolution. I think that people who think of the old earth, that think of day-age theories this, I don't think that they are correct, but I don't think that they're heretics. I think they're wrong, but I reserve heresy for beliefs that will drive a person to hell. And I don't think God is going to send anybody to hell for being mistaken about that. Now, I don't mean to say that I think it's an insignificant issue, 
But uh, I, I really long for people to emphasize the idea that God is the creator. And I think that the narrative, because I think it is fundamentally a narrative with poetic elements in it, leans towards something like six 24-hour days. So again, I think it's something there and something to discuss. Another question from YouTube from Johnny asks, do we invite the Holy Spirit or Jesus in or are they given to us and we receive them? Okay, Johnny, I'm going to read your question one more time, then I'm going to answer, so listen carefully. Here's the question. Do we invite the Holy Spirit or Jesus in or are they given to us and we receive them? Here's your answer. Yes. We do both. We invite them in and God gives them to us. We can't create the infilling of the Holy Spirit in ourselves. It just doesn't work that way. This is nothing that human beings can manufacture. It's something we receive from God. However, God normally, I'm not saying that there couldn't be some rare exceptions, and we find a few rare exceptions in the Bible, but normally God does not bestow or pour out his Holy Spirit upon unwilling people, unreceptive people. Again, I'll fully allow that there are some exceptions, but in general, the way God works is to work within a person a desire, a willingness, and they ask and God bestows. So I don't see any contradiction between our asking and receiving and God bestowing. The problem or the contradiction would be is if um, this somehow puts us in control of the giving or the reception of the Holy Spirit. No, never. Never could we be in control. This is God's work, but it is a work that we must receive from God. So really, that's how I would phrase it, um, Johnny. Hope that's helpful for you. For our last question for today comes from Plain Jane. Jane, I don't know, maybe you're not all that plain, but it comes from YouTube, Plain Jane, and says, could you do a Q&A with your wife, her work, challenges, and how she overcomes, etc." Well, Jane, let me answer that question. Yes. Now that you ask, I'll put it on my list, and we will do it. That is a great suggestion, uh, and you guys are going to love my wife. My wife, Ingalil, is amazing, and the work she does will do an entire Thursday Q&A focused on the work that she does with the dental mission and this great gift and calling that God has given her and how many people she blesses and serves in Jesus' name. So that'll take a few weeks because she's in Honduras right now and we'll have to look for an opportunity. But plain Jane, I think that is a tremendous question and uh, that's great. We're going to do that sometime. I'm assuming my wife is willing to do this. She's usually a good sport about those things, so I'm not too worried about it. Hey, everybody, let me just say one more time. Thank you for joining me on today's question and answer time. Our YouTube audience, our Facebook Live audience, our TWR360 audience, love you guys. Thank you for all the work that you do. And um, so pleased that I could join you here today from Bahrain, the kingdom of Bahrain, where um, it's wonderful to see what God is doing in the midst of this very special place. Uh, so thank you so much. Next week, we're going to be back at uh, 12 noon. And again, it's going to be a special surprise next week. 
I'm not going to say what, but it will be, I hope, a pretty good surprise for you. God bless you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you to Devin and Andrea for their support work back home. And uh, please remember to pray for the ongoing work of Enduring Word, especially, it's on my heart heavy today, pray for the furtherance of the work of the Arabic translation, the Arabic commentary. That's why we're in this part of the world to see that further. God bless you, and thank you for joining us today. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.